Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. So I was preparing this week after spending some time and studying the text. When I, as is my practice, I then will occasionally check um, some commentaries. And when I got checked uh, the, uh, on one of them, theologian John Stott uh, informed me that this passage, in his opinion, that we are looking at this morning is perhaps the most difficult passage in all of the New Testament, which was not an encouraging thing as I was preparing. Felt kind of like the uh, guy who was a mountain climber who perhaps had made a few mountain climbs and was getting ambitious, and then I get to the foot of a mountain and only to have the world-class mountain climber said, I, I don't know if I'm ready to tackle this one, but you go ahead. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I also think that one, of the things, that one of the things I saw and that I have found to be true that uh, Stott pointed out is that this passage is also very contemporary, very pertinent to believers today, believers in our church, even as it was to the church in Galatia as the apostle wrote it. And so as we look at it this morning, we'll unpack it in a way that will hopefully be able to help you follow and read it on your own, uh, and also to mine from it the, the gold uh, that will uh, bless us. As we uh, come to the passage, let's go to the Lord first in prayer. Father, we come to you and pray that by your spirit you would open our minds as well as our hearts, that we may glean from this word, difficult or not, uh, what you would have us to have. For it is your word, and your spirit is able to translate and apply whatever we need. And so, Father, we come to you with great expectation that you will speak to us, and that we absolutely worship you as we come to you and as we listen for your voice. Father, speak to us here this morning. While it's an overcast day and even a somewhat somber service, Lord, the delight of hearing the voice of the living God speaking to us, reminding of, of your love. Father, what joy you bring. Bring that to us now, we pray in Christ. Amen. Galatians chapter 4. Ah, I went through puberty again here for a second. Um, Galatians chapter 4. <clears throat> the sad thing is when I did have my voice cracking, it was during football season and I was in eighth grade. And since I was a quarterback, that was ugly. Um, so <laughs> it's a whole other story I'm in counseling for that. But anyway... Um, Verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman, the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, 
For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of slave, but of the free woman. May the Lord bless us, give us understanding from his word. On November 4th, 1979, thousands of Iranians stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. 66 Americans were captured and held for over 400 days in a drama that was drawn out and dubbed America Held Hostage. Not included in those 66 were six Americans who were somehow able to slip past the angry mobs and escaped into sanctuary in the home of Canadian diplomats where they hid out, wondered about their safety, and hoped and I suspect prayed for some way that they would be delivered uh, from the circumstances and what would have been a certain death had they been found and captured. Now, this weekend I saw the movie Argo for the first time, friends of encouraging me to see that, and I finally did see it. And it's a film that was, came out in 2012, starring and, and directed by Ben Affleck. And Ben Affleck plays the character, a CIA um, agent, who was charged with coming up with the plan to somehow get these hidden six Americans out of the potential danger, the danger that they were in while they were hiding in the Canadian embassy. And as the film unfolds, you see the, the, them talking about all the possibilities, and he concocted a story that almost seems like it would have to have been concocted in Hollywood. Because the way that they planned on getting the, these people out was that Affleck would go and pretend to be a movie producer, and that he would have passports and IDs for all of those six who were in hiding that said they were all Canadian citizens and all part of a Canadian film crew who were in Iran in order to find a location for some fictional film. Now when I say fictional film, I mean there was no film. They were made the whole thing up. There was never going to be a film. Nevertheless, despite the fact that there was no film, they created an office. They had a casting. They had costumes. They had publicity. They took out newspaper articles. They created posters to spread and even had all of the drawings for this film that was never going to be made called Argo. It was supposed to be some science fiction film of wars in space, and they figured the desolate area of Afghanistan and Iran would be a great setting. When they discussed this plan, it was originally decided, this is just stupid. But the CIA apparently determined that all they had were stupid plans, and this was the best of the stupid plans they had. In the film, they refer to it as the best bad plan they could come up with. And so they decided they would go ahead and, and, and go with that plan. And so they executed that plan, and they were able to, not without complication, bring each of those six people out deliver them first to Canada, ultimately back home. And eventually all of them ended up going back into the foreign service. I would tell you, I didn't want to spoil the plot for you, but since it's history, you know, it's already, we already know the end of it, and it's been declassified. And interestingly enough, in November, the CIA began tweeting out, not only about the movie, saying, you know, they really appreciate, but they began saying, but here's a few areas where the movie got it slightly wrong, but we still like the movie. And so, anyway, I commend the movie to you. Uh, it's beneficial uh, to know both the history it's a movie. I find myself intriguing, even though I knew how it was going to end. Now, the reason that's pertinent for us this morning is because in the book of Galatians, or Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul himself is heading essentially a rescue mission. 
He is seeking to free those who are being held captive by the mindset of their own performance, that they are to relate to God on the basis of how well they behave, what it is that they do. In this letter, nearly 20 times, Paul uses the allusion to the word slavery or enslaved or, or slaves. And we see it repeatedly even in this particular passage. Paul's talking about the difference between slaves and free. And he's writing this to the Galatians and he's writing this for our benefit so that we understand the, ten, the, the dangers of being enslaved and choosing to be enslaved. One of the things that was interesting about the movie Argo is when the stupid plan was revealed to them, most of the people, or at least some of the people that were of those six, listened to the plan and thought, this is crazy. We're not going to do this. We would rather stay here, locked up inside of this embassy, even though the embassy itself may go. It's really a picture of the way that many of us are as well. Because when we consider life and the dangers and the perils and sometimes the things that God tells us that we are to do and to step out, such as just believe that it's a matter of God's promise and he'll provide for us, we think that's kind of scary. I'd rather be back in bondage. I'd rather be back in slavery to, in our case, to our performance. And Paul, as he's writing this letter in this very first verse we're looking at, he confronts Everybody who's challenged with that same temptation, which is all of us. And Paul, as he writes, he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law. Now, it's interesting as Paul is writing that, that should get the attention of everybody who's reading this or hearing this. Because if somebody is speaking in a way and, and, and challenging, and then they categorize and they say, you who want such and such, the natural question for all of us should be, am I one of those? How is this, this applied to me? And Paul's question is, as he's challenging, you who desire to be under the law. There's a few ways in which the, that can be expressed. The most obvious is what the teachers were, here, were trying to teach here, and that many of us have experienced, is those who assume that the basis of our relationship with God, the basis of our identity, everything is about how well we perform. There are certain rules, certain expectations. As we check them off, then we know we're good. As we leave them unchecked, we assume that we're not good. And so some people like that because there's a sense of security. They know how much they've done. They know how they measure to other people. And so Paul is clearly talking to people who like the idea, desiring to be under the law because they like their checklist and how it makes them feel. But there are other people who also are under the law. In one sense, they desire because they don't know that there's any other way. They feel like there's a bunch of rules, and yet they are weighed down heavy by the fact that they are not able to check off enough, not when they're honest, not when they look into their hearts, not when they look in their overall performance. And so they still believe that they're under the authority of the law, under the authority of the rules, but rather than feeling really good about themselves, being self-righteous as the first might be, these people tend to be very discouraged very depressed. No doubt here in our congregation today, there are both types. Paul is addressing not only those of you who feel good about yourselves and those of you who are discouraged about your lives, but he's addressing all of us in this way and saying, those of you who desire to be under the law, haven't you listened to the law? In other words, if you actually listen to what the law says, there's nobody that can be so foolish as to assume that they can keep it. And so if you're somebody who's under the law and thinking that it's making you look good, well, then you're not listening to what the law says. 
And if you're one who is listening to the law and thinking that it's making you feel bad, what Paul is offering to you, as God has offered to all through the person of Jesus Christ, is to say, feeling bad is a natural understanding of it like the law, but that's not where it ends. You don't need a desire to be under the law. And Paul reminds us, and in here in his summary statement of this book, he is saying, reminding those who are born in Christ Jesus, those who have received Christ, believing the message that he's declared, receiving the gift that has been given in him, those who are in Christ, you are born free. You're free. You're free by your very nature. You're no longer under the law. And Paul is beginning to try to challenge, say, do you understand and believe this gospel? And here, as he begins to sum things up, he's challenging the people to ask themselves that question. But it's hard. It seems too good to be true. It seems too simplistic. I saw this week a friend of mine, as a pastor in a different denomination, had posted something on Facebook, and it was a quote from uh, some theologian. And I got the point, but the quote was essentially this. We need to learn that the gospel is not justification alone. Now, that caught my attention, obviously, because I spent the better part of the past couple of months trying to tell you that the gospel is justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. But I also had to stop and realize and say, you know what, there's a part that is right. The gospel is not just justification by grace through faith alone. Paul would agree. The gospel is also adoption that you are children of God. The gospel is also what he was trying to point out is also the kingdom that is not only coming but can be experienced in its present. It's the promise of God that is full and full dimensional. And so while the idea that the gospel is not justification alone has some truth to it, though, I had to come back to where I began and say, while all of those things are true, what seems to be missing in this quote, and the theologian that he was quoting I think also misses this, is that it is the heart of the gospel is justification, that we are justified by believing in the promise of God alone. Because apart from believing that, then we are not children of God, and we don't have the benefit of adoption, and we are not part of the kingdom that is to come, and we cannot experience it. You can labor all you want, you can be as good as all you want, but there is no good news apart from the promise that if we believe in Christ, we are born free. And Paul is trying to hammer that home here in this particular passage, and he's challenging people like you and me to evaluate your lives and find out whether there are any chains that are shackling you and restraining the joy that could be yours in this life because you are allowing yourself again to be in bondage or falling back under the law. And so Paul, as he's writing this letter, this letter that seems to be confusing, at least according to John Stott, who is a whole lot smarter than I am, but nevertheless is powerful for us to understand. And he's making this case that those who are in Christ are born free and those who are born free should live free. That's the gist of everything that he's writing in the end of this letter, in the end of this, this passage. Now, after we move into this, Paul will begin to take this truth and start applying it to different dimensions of our lives and say, what does it mean to live the implications of the gospel? But right now, he's just trying to hammer home the foundation, the heart, so that we don't confuse anything and we don't move on behind it. And as we look at this text, there's a couple of ways that we need to look at this. One is if you're going to outline the text itself, as you're going to read it on your own, you're going to see three different dimensions. Beginning in verse 22 and 23, you see that Paul talks about it's historical. 
And then we see, moving on from there, 24 through 27 or so, it is allegorical. And then we see the remainder of the letter is practical. All three, we see that's the way that Paul has framed his argument. And, and we're going to look at it in that way, but we're going to do so with really two headings. One is we want to see the case first, what Paul is saying, is that we are born free, because that's what the historical and the allegorical does. It solidifies his case. And then we're going to look at the fact of what it, what it is, that Paul's, how Paul instructs us to live free. Now, first we need to remember and hear that what Paul is saying is that we who are in Christ, this is what Paul is saying to the Galatians, we who have trusted in the promise given us in Jesus Christ, we are born free. Paul, in verse 22, uses the historical. He brings up something that would be very familiar to the Galatians, certainly to the teachers in Galatia, very familiar to most of you who have been Bible students or in Sunday school at some time or another. Maybe not all of you, but he brings up the story of Abraham, verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Again, most of you are familiar with the story, but just so that we're all on the same page. Abraham was chosen by God, and through him, God promised to bring, make a people for himself. The promise to Abraham is that he would be a father to many nations, and all of the nations of the earth would be blessed by or through him. And that was fulfilled through the line of Christ and God's people, and yet we divorce the theological concept from the real life that Abraham experienced sometimes and we miss what would be helpful for us. So this promise was made to Abraham when he was fairly old. You can be the father of many nations, which generally requires to be a father is we have to have kids, but Abraham had no kids, nor had his, nor had his wife, Sarah. But God said, we're gonna remedy that. You will have a son. And Abraham believed. The scripture says, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And God called him to go. Abraham believed, and Abraham believed, and the next year came, and Abraham believed he's going to have a son, and he continued to believe, and Abraham believed. And the 70-something-year-old guy who had received a promise is now in his mid-80s, and there's still no kid. And now his wife one day, wanting, I guess, to bail God out, it's kind of the thing that we do. God makes a promise, and we then decide, somehow, I must have missed it. I'm supposed to do something. She makes a suggestion to Abraham because he's going to be the father of many nations. And she says, I've, I've got an idea. And as she explains, she said, God has not allowed me to have children, which is also something that we tend to do, isn't it? When God makes a promise and we don't see it coming in our own time, we blame God as opposed to waiting in promise. And so she made this suggestion to her 80-something-year-old husband. She said, what's appropriate in our culture, in our custom, though not dictated by God, is that if you have a servant, then you can take your servant and if your servant bears a child to you, then that becomes your son by law and by every, every cultural understanding and therefore can receive the inheritance. Maybe that's what God had in mind all along. Maybe we've just been waiting. And I have this servant who is young, beautiful, and fertile. And so, Abraham, do you want to, uh, why don't you, what do you think about the plan? Now, I can tell you this is not a conversation that has ever happened or ever happened in my household. And, 80, and he's 80-some years old, and I guess he's just saying, I'll give it my best shot. I have no idea. I mean, I have no idea what he said. That's an intriguing thing to ponder. But that's, that's what the Bible says. And so he did. Hagar, his, servant, his wife's servant, bore him a child named Ishmael. But God said, that's not what I meant. You, Sarah's going to have that. And Sarah said, yeah, but I'm old and worn out. 
And so then a few years later, God says, finally, now's the time. And Abraham said, can a guy who's 100 years old with a wife who's 90 have a child? And God says, yes. And Sarah laughed. And God said, why did you laugh? And Sarah did what we also do. Tried to tell God, you misunderstood. She said, I didn't laugh. God said, you did. Sarah conceived. And Sarah gave birth to a child named Isaac, which means laughter, which means not only did she bring laughter of joy into the life of Abraham and Sarah for having a child, for seeing God's promise, but it's also a reminder that God always gets the last laugh. Now, Paul says, here's the story. And we can take this story allegorically. Now, sometimes allegoric can be kind of dangerous. An allegory is simply taking a story and through symbolism, teaching a message that might well otherwise not be as easily seen or understood. And some things get allegorized to such a point that it's ridiculous because if you have a creative enough imagination, you can create symbols to teach pretty much anything. But nevertheless, it's still appropriate because God's inspired Paul to say this can be done allegorically, and Paul demonstrates the best of what allegory does. Allegory teaches in a vivid way, a memorable way, that which has been true and revealed in other ways throughout the scripture. And what Paul is teaching here is that the alleg- taking this allegorically is going to teach what has been true from the very beginning of redemptive history. And he says that we can take this allegorically. We can understand what maybe hasn't been understood. Jesus talked about this somewhat too when he says, look, you're always seeing and you're never perceiving and you're hearing and you're not understanding. In other words, sometimes we see things and we take them only at face value. We don't understand the message behind them. Paul's saying, let's take this historical account and let's consider this allegorically. Now, when we consider it allegorically, we need to see that there are imagery that he uses here. There are two families. He refers to two mothers, two sons. And there are two places that he refers to. There's Jerusalem on earth and then there's the heavenly Jerusalem. And he makes this illustration, I'm going to read through this and go slowly so that we can explain this as we go to understand what Paul is trying to hammer in here. But picking up here in verse 24, what Paul says, now this may be interpreted allegorically, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, which would have certainly perked the ears up of the Judaizers, saying, Sinai, now we're talking my language. That's like somebody saying, now we're going to take the rule from Knoxville to which Ben would cringe, but the rest of you would be blessed. No, uh, that's, uh, but, um. and then he goes a totally different direction that would have just not only disheartened, but frustrated them. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Sinai, Hagar, Hagar was, they were outcast. The law comes through and Isaac, and so they're already confused. Verse 25, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. And then there's a prophecy that has been applied here. Paul is saying here, we need to understand that these images, these are different from one another. They reflect two different covenants. One is a covenant that leads to slavery. That's bondage under the law. One is a covenant that is free, not only freeing you from penalty, but freeing you to actually obey. And he says that the one that is natural, and the reason he's saying that the Hagar represents that which is the present Jerusalem, he's saying it's just everyday life. It requires no grace. It requires no supernatural work. It's just saying, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do, so I'm going to do the best I can to figure out what it is I'm supposed to do. That's exactly what Abraham and Sarah did, is they figured out if we're supposed to have a child, we know where children come from. 
I'm too old, don't have a history of having children, but here is a young fertile woman, so that would be our best bet. The child was born, no supernatural work in that. That's a very natural thing to have occurred. And what Paul is saying here is, therefore, she represents just this world, all there is. There's no reason, no need for grace. On the other hand, Sarah represents the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is from above. The Jerusalem that comes and is experienced by promise and by the power of God at work in a way that you or I or Abraham or Sarah, that nobody else could do. But when God promises to believe and then trust that he will do what he says that he will do. And this woman who was beyond childbearing years and who even in her childbearing years had no children, delivers a child when she is almost 100 years old. The child that God had promised, demonstrating that he was the one who was in power. He was the one who would fulfill his promise. And the benefits that come to those who believe are coming to them because God would fulfill the promises that he made. Our part is simply to believe. And he said that reflects the, heaven, the, the, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is to come. Believing that is by promise, not by earning it. And we get confused about that in a number of ways every day in our life. But one of the things kind of historically that caught my attention that I think is pertinent for us to consider as we understand this whole principle of the promise of God and his power rather than our lives is this. Years ago in China, as missionaries were laboring when the revolution came, they kicked all of the Western missionaries out. No more Christian missionaries allowed in China. Carolyn had a great aunt who was a missionary at the time and she was one of those, among those who were evicted from the country. And no question that every Western, every Christian mission organization and church was wondering now what's going to happen. These people, not only were they living in darkness before, but now they're under the oppression of a communist regime. How in the world is the light of the gospel going to get to them? And then, I don't remember specific, 50 some years later, when the curtain was pulled back and we were allowed back in and started connecting again with China, we see that the gospel had not only blossomed, it had boomed to the point that there are more evangelical Christians in China than there are in the United States, and I believe more than in the Western world. This was not a good ministry mission strategy. I know. We want to reach this country that by nature is not following Christ, so what we're going to do is we're going to pull all the Christians out and see what happens. Try that in your garden for a year, two years, 50 years. See what fruit produces and how that happens, and yet God's promise is that he would call people from every tribe and every nation. God's power was at work through the believers that were already there. And even under the cloak cover and the absence of all of our help and all of our resources, somehow God was able to pull off what he had promised and bless that nation. The same promise is true for you and for me in our lives. We are not making the progress we want. And so it was very easy for us to think that it's now the checklists. I'm not suggesting not wisdom or, or just sit back and wait. I'm saying that the foundation that God says is he makes a promise. We must believe the promise and never leave the belief. It's not a matter of living as if believing it's up to God, but living as if it's uh, up to us. We trust in God's promise. The reality is, though, many have this understanding. And they know that the gospel is their only hope. But they still want their own identity to be their own obedience, or their own commitment, or their own seriousness about the Christian faith. They want the 
whatever their motive, they, they, they live or they communicate a message that says what really matters is the report card. And consequently, one of the things that is the irony of this is some of those who want to be known as loving God the most, loving Jesus the most, actually rob God of the glory that would be his by simply trusting that our salvation and our lives are in his hands and salvation comes by the promise and believing the promise that God accomplishes his purpose. I know this is confusing. Some of you may be sitting there thinking, well, what else is there? We're supposed to show our fruit, people are supposed to know. And I'm not suggesting that's not the case. But the fruit is not our seriousness. Fruit become is our Christ-likeness. And that is shown not necessarily through our seriousness and focus on our chore, but is born when we are serious and focused on Christ and what he has done for us. In other words, the answer is not work as hard as we can necessarily. The answer is that when people see us, they would not know us necessarily for our good deeds. They would know us even more so for the fact that our only hope is Jesus. And so somebody might come and say, Brian, I hear you. I mean, I'm really impressed with all that you've done. And an appropriate response for Brian to remind himself of and even to then would be to say, maybe I'm blessed, but it's not the half of what I want to do, and anything I do is because God's at work within me. Or, Camper, you screwed up again. I thought I was just waiting to pick on Camper for a while. We've, we've missed him, so we thought we'd pick on him. But anyway, and I know Camper's response is, uh, you don't know the half of it. But my only hope is that I belong to Jesus Christ who has paid whatever I'm lacking and empowered me to do what he's commanded me to do. See, there's a difference between our identity being on what we wear and our identity being Christ. And it's not just a posture and a rhetoric. It's an attitude, a mindset, and a faith. And it's required that we live in this in terms of discipline. Because Paul, as he goes on, is saying, look, you are born free. I've shown you the historical. I've shown you the allegorical. This has been true from the beginning. Abraham believed God. It was credited as righteousness. You who are in Christ, if you believe what Christ has promised, you're free. You're children of God based on the promise. But Paul moves on and says, but those who are born free should also live free. And he moves on and he gives some practical advice. In verse 28, now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. In other words, he's saying we're like Isaac. We are born free, and then he goes on and gives them how do we live. If those who are born free, how is it that we live? And he gives two pieces of advice, which are interesting here. In verse 29, he says, but just as at that time, when he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. The first practical thing that he says in terms of living free is to be aware that persecution will come to those who belong to Jesus Christ. Now, we've heard that. We understand that. Many of us live and, and probably with a little bit of fear as we see the world changing. And many of us feel like we're being persecuted because we don't have the same privileged position in our culture that we once enjoyed. 
And Paul certainly is tying it to the whole Isaac and Ishmael thing, and it'd be easy to look in the Western world. An article came out that Preston uh, suggested I read this week uh, called What ISIS Really Wants, and the short answer is they don't want us. And it is unnerving to consider what some in the world who fall under the Ishmael family, Arabian, the, the, the Islamic world, and what they think of those who are in the line of Isaac, Jewish and Christian. And so the persecution is part of that, and, and, but that's not really what Paul is addressing here. See, the problem for the Galatians was not others. It was Christians. And what he is saying to you and to me who have either embraced or are wrestling with this whole idea of it's by grace alone and nothing else, he's saying that you and I who live, choose to believe and that know our identity is in Christ by faith alone, you can always expect to be persecuted, not by the world, but by other Christians who want to live by the law. They will constantly tell you you're not measuring up, you're not good enough, you're not serious enough, and if they could have their way, they would declare that you are not a Christian because pff, you're not wearing the right clothes or you're not wearing enough clothes or you're not doing the right things. Paul says, you can expect this. Many of you have experienced this. Some of you perhaps have been on the other side of it, where you are the one who has been pointing out the deficiencies of other people. And of course, to help them. Paul says, just be, be aware. It was that way at the beginning. It's still that way today. There's something that ticks people off. about Something about grace that just ticks people off. But what's interesting to me is the next passage. Excuse me, next verse in verse 30. But what does the scripture say? In other words, he's relating to the same thing. So you who are buying this, it's all about God's grace and God's promise and living with the identity in Jesus, so, but are getting persecuted for it. What does scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. See, legalists and people who take themselves way too seriously would cast out those who are clinging to grace alone. Paul is saying, they're not the ones that should leave. He's saying, kick the uptight people out. Now, when Paul was writing to the Galatian church, he meant that probably literally. Kick the teachers out and take the ideas with them. Didn't want them because it was difficult. I don't think he's saying that to us because all of us are still a work in process. But he is saying to us is don't embrace the false teaching and don't embrace the false ideas. Kick them out of your mind and don't allow them in your churches. Get rid of those ideas entirely. I don't think he's telling us to cast people out because otherwise how would they hear exactly what Paul is saying to the Galatians? That it's a by grace it's, it's, it, it's, that we are his. The reason Paul is doing this is because he understands this. If we do not persist in grace, if we do not fight for freedom, we will slip back into the bondage of performance and legalism. I mean, the pressure is too great. In any Bible-believing church, you have people always trying to heap more and more responsibility on you, tell you what you ought to be, not what you are in Christ. And eventually, it weighs on you. 
not only is the pressure too great, but we fall back into it because I think it's our natural default mode. When I was in college, I had a car that the battery would often die. Fortunately, I was living in East Tennessee, so I could always find a hill. I had a gear, so I would park on the top of a hill. I'd just push it a few feet, jump in my little Toyota, go on downhill, cop it into gear, and I was fine, as long as I could find a hill. It was really difficult on those times that you're in a shopping center and have to push it like 15 yards and jump in at the right speed. That's a whole other issue. But the problem with the, with the car, even though I could always get it started, was whenever the battery would die, then all the settings would fall back to the original factory settings. The clock would be wrong. All the radio buttons would be wrong. I mean, that was just painful. <laughs> but we need to understand that our natural default since the fall, our natural factory setting is to work, to religion, to earn it. And so not only is there pressure on us to assume that, uh, that, we, that makes us need to fight for the gospel and fight for freedom, but we're inclined to it. And we need to know that we're inclined to it. And Paul is reminding us here that that's not the hope that we have. And we do it whenever we make anything central other than the cross of Christ. Listen to what theologian D.A. Carson, Carson says. I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relative peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. Whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center, we are not too far removed from idolatry. This is an important concept because Paul is saying to those of us, we're born free, we must live free, and to live free, we must fight to be free. And we must be aware that there are pressures and our own conformity would be to move what should identify us and is our hope out of the center, not denying, but move that out of the center and move something else in. All across the country in American churches and perhaps even in, some, in our own community, in our own church, Identities and affinities and fellowship is based on peripheral ideas rather than on the cross of Christ. In other words, people hive together, cling together based on how they choose to educate. People hive together based on different issues of social action that they're concerned about. Different mission passions that they have. Different wardrobes or dress. Different historical figures that they like different eschatological or end times ideas or theological positions that we like. We hive off on those things which are all good. But they are periphery, not the center. The cross and what Christ has done is the center. And when we displace the cross as our identity and the basis of our faith and make the basis of our fellowship something else, we are in danger of denying the cross and moving back into slavery. And there's, any mil there's a million things. Most of them are very good that can take us from the centrality of the cross. But anything that does is striking against grace and truth. Let me wrap up with just kind of this illustration. Many of you have probably heard it before. The old ones are always good. But as I understand, at least in the old days, one of the ways that monkeys were captured out in the, uh, in the jungles was traps, basically baskets were made and filled with nuts and fruits that the monkeys would like. That with an opening that was large enough for the monkey to put an open hand in, but not large enough to get a clenched fist out. And so the monkeys would go and they would grab a hold of something good, but they would now be trapped 
but they wanted that thing so much, they would not let go and they continued to be ensnared. The reality is there are many good things that are, us, that are available to us, permissible for us as Christians in this life. But when we cling to them more than we cling to the cross of Christ, we are trapped. We are no longer free. Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians and to us to say, be free. The remedy is to center on the cross and constantly make sure that the cross is the center of your identity and your hope, no matter how full your periphery may be. And to remind yourself by preaching the gospel, reminding yourself, I hope is in Christ alone who God gave to me despite myself. And preach it to each other. Don't let any hobby horse remove the laughter, laughter from your life. Because Paul says here, Brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you and pray that we would not be, although we are like Abraham, but we would not be those who laugh at your promise those who laugh at the fulfillment of the promise that is ours in Christ. Open our eyes and our hearts to our real condition that we would not feel the need to perform but freely receive the gift you've given us and the power then to perform. Bless us, Lord, that we may bless one another and you. I pray in Christ. Amen.